Hey, what's up, everybody? My name is DJ Martin, church pastor at Park Ford Church, and welcome to our ongoing midweek teaching series on the Bible. We've titled this series Regarding Scripture, and each week we're tackling different uh, topics and questions around the scriptures and around uh, the Bible. This is week three of this series, and if you haven't watched the first two videos, I'd encourage you to start uh, with the first two. The first week, we talked about uh, four uh, challenges that um, every modern reader of the Bible faces, the four challenges of distance, and that's the distance of time. The Bible is an ancient book, so anytime we read the Bible, uh, we're traveling back way back in time. Uh, secondly, uh, the distance, the challenge of the distance of culture was written from a very different cultural perspective than that of our own. Uh, the challenge of the distance of geography was written from a different place in a different land. And finally, the challenge of the distance of language. Uh, the Bible was written primarily in Hebrew and in Greek and some Aramaic. And uh, I doubt very much that any watchers of this video are uh, native-born ancient Hebrew or uh, biblical Greek speakers. And so we face these challenges every time we read the scriptures. Um, but despite the difficulty, uh, despite the ancient nature of the Bible written from a different cultural perspective in a different place and in different languages, it's worth it. And it's worth it because of its purpose. What is the purpose of the Bible? The purpose of the Bible is to reveal the nature and story of God, most clearly through the life example and teachings of Jesus, and to model for us how to live out the way of Jesus. There's four uh, different main purposes of the Bible that we looked at last week in week two of this series. And they are uh, first, knowledge of God, to grow our knowledge of God. Secondly, the Bible exists uh, to bring us to a point of faith in God. Thirdly, the Bible exists uh, to grow our love for God and our love for others. And finally, uh, the scriptures exist to develop our endurance and our hope in Jesus. So faith, hope, love, and knowledge. Each of these are the primary purposes of the Bible. It's really important that we understand why the Bible exists, um, because the more that we understand about the purpose of the Bible, uh, the less likely we will be to abuse the Bible or weaponize it or use it inappropriately, and the more likely we'll be able to use it in a helpful uh, way, in the way that God intended it. So today, and continuing this series, we're talking about the Old Testament. Or the Hebrew Bible, where did the Old Testament come from? Throughout this series, I'm referencing a book by New Testament scholar Michael Byrd uh, called Seven Things That I Wish Christians Knew About the Bible. It's written at a popular level. It's very accessible, um, but incredibly helpful and informative in answering a lot of questions about the Bible. And so um, right at the beginning of the book, Michael Byrd writes, as I'm sure you are aware, are aware, your Bible did not fall out of the sky, accompanied by a chorus of angels, and land in your lap, oh, just like that, <laughs> featuring a pristine leather-bound cover, the words of Jesus in red, complete with introduction, charts, tables, cross-references, and steady notes. No, that is obviously not where your Bible came from. And while I seriously doubt um, anyone who's watching this video would think that that's where the Bible came from, my guess is... If you were to be asked, okay, how did the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament come to be? Like, where did it come from? What was the development process for it? There would probably be some confusion. There would probably be some wild guesses. 
Um, and there might be some misinformation in there. So I want to talk about it just a little bit today, as well as what the Old Testament is, what the Hebrew Bible uh, is. And so um, this is an example of this. Um, my guess is that the Bible that you most often use, whether it's the Bible app on your phone that pulls up a translation like NIV or NASB, or it's a physical body, a bot, excuse me, physical Bible that you have, my guess is that it has both uh, chapters and verses. Um, but that's actually a pretty modern introduction, a pretty recent introduction uh, to the scripture. So this is from Bible.org, their article, How and When Was the Bible Divided into Chapters and Verses? And in the article, it says, Stephen Langton in the 12th century added what we use today as the chapter divisions. He did this into the Latin Vulgate. That's the Latin translation of the Bible. The tradition is that these divisions were later then transferred to the Hebrew Bible. So back to the Hebrew Bible. From manuscripts dating back to the fourth century, however, uh, some form of chapter divisions were being used. In 1551, Robert Estini added verse divisions to his fourth edition of the Greek New Testament while en route between Paris and uh, France. The first translation uh, to employ his versification was the Geneva translation in 1557. The point being that um, for many hundreds of years, and before that, uh, for many, many hundreds of years uh, in the Hebrew scriptures, uh, chapters and verses weren't used. And yet for us, that's like common sense to have chapters and verses in there. So how did the Bible develop into what it is today? Okay, this is maybe the key point when talking about the Old Testament that I I'd like you to take away uh, from, from this discussion. This is from Dr. Bart Ehrman's book, Lost Christianities, The Battle for Scripture and the Faiths We Never Knew. He says, uh, the Christian movement had a canon of scripture at its very beginning, even prior to the writings of any apostolic texts. Jesus and his earthly followers themselves had a collection of sacred writings. They were all Jews, and they fully accepted the authority of books that came to be included in what later Christians would call the Old Testament. This is absolutely key for us uh, today, because there's an impulse, I think there's often an impulse to try to maybe avoid some of the Old Testament because of its uh, cultural differences, because of the distance and time, those four distance challenges that we've talked about. But Jesus considered the books that we know as the Old Testament um, all of them, he considered them uh, scripture. And so did the disciples, and so did the apostles, so did the apostle Paul. And when they quote from the scriptures, they're quoting from the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. Okay, so continuing to uh, look at the Old Testament, I'm going to look at a couple things here. Um, the Old Testament is also known as the Hebrew Bible. In scholarly writings, in both articles and published works, uh, published books, it's uh, usually referred to as the Hebrew Bible, not the Old Testament. And so the Hebrew Bible is what we, we call the Old Testament. Jewish people called the Hebrew scriptures uh, the Tanakh based on three letters, uh, the letters T, N, and K, or the three uh, trifold division uh, found within the Hebrew scriptures. So T for Torah, that's the law, N for Nevi'im, or the prophets, K for Ketuvim, or the writings, um, the writings in the scriptures. And you can see that as early as the first century, as early as the time of Jesus, that uh, the Jewish people had already uh, divided 
the Hebrew Bible into these categories. Jesus says in Luke 24, verse 44, everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the Torah, uh, the prophets, and the Psalms, or that, that was a catch-all way uh, of saying the writings, what's included there. So if you look at these three uh, divisions, you have the law, the prophets, and the writings, they would fall, uh, the Hebrew Bible would fall under these uh, categories. The law includes the Torah, it's the Pentateuch, or the five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And so it tells the story from creation in Genesis 1 to the death of Moses as the people are about to enter into the promised land after the 40 years of wilderness wandering. So that's the that's the Torah or the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses. The second category, the prophets, includes Joshua, Judges, 1st and 2nd Samuel, and 1st and 2nd Kings have uh, traditionally been considered uh, prophetic writing. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, uh, the, the book of the 12 or the 12 minor prophets, um, and that makes up the category of prophets. And the third category, the writings, is kind of a catch-all. It has uh, quite a bit in there. It's got wisdom writings like Psalms, Proverbs, Job. Uh, it has some history in there like Ruth and uh, First and Second Chronicles. And it has some poetic sort of things like Ecclesiastes, which is also a wisdom book, Song of Solomon, Lamentations. Uh, has some more history and apocalyptic literature in Daniel. It uh, has the, the beautiful story in Esther and uh, both the prophetic sort of uh, prophetic and historical books, uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, which were uh, originally one scroll or kept together. And so those are the three major divisions uh, found within the uh, Hebrew Bible. So how did the Torah come to be? This, this is the most ancient part of the Bible. Uh, from Genesis, uh, the creation story through the death of Moses um, at, at the edge of the promised land at the end of Deuteronomy. Um, the, the, Hebrew, the Hebrew scriptures there, the Torah includes hundreds of years of history um, from, you know, um, Noah and before Noah all the way to Moses. And so writing about this, there's a lot of interesting conversation in scholarly circles about how the Torah uh, developed over time into what we have uh, today, or which is, you know, essentially the same Torah that Jesus would have read. Um, and so this is from Michael Bird's Seven Things I Wish Christians Knew About the Bible. What this means is that the law is the product of an oral tradition. So it started with oral tradition um, that was eventually committed to writing. A formative role in composition is attributed to Moses. So Moses played a, a pretty integral role in bringing it together. Um, then there was a period of transmission, growth, and editing of the traditions and texts, which was probably completed uh, by a priestly group associated with Ezra just after the return from the exile. And if you read uh, the book of Ezra, you can see some hints at this, uh, that Ezra and uh, other priestly scribes were busy uh, trying to collect and codify and solidify um, all of the writings so that it was all uh, together in an organized manner. And so again, that's this is just a 20,000 foot view of a, a huge world of study in biblical scholarship. And you can read all about that in uh, various places. How about the prophets? How did the uh, prophet uh, prophetic literature develop? At, well, as with the law, this is also from Michael Bird's Seven Things I Wish Christians Knew About the Bible. As with the law, the prophetic messages have often been through a complex chain of custody before finally attaining the literary form we have them in today. The prophet Hulda, on the one hand, delivered her important prophetic word orally, and it seems she never got a book deal, and that's uh, found in 2 Kings 22, verse 14. 
Jeremiah, on the other hand, delivered some of his messages in written form from the start, as recorded in Jeremiah 30, verse 2. It would appear that from the 8th century BC, so, so very early on, like a long time ago, um, almost 3,000 years ago, people started to collect and edit the work of certain prophets for the benefit of subsequent generations, often adding historical material for context. An example of that would be Jeremiah 1.1. So when you think of who wrote the prophetic literature, you should picture a whole team. The prophets who were receiving um, you know, inspired words from the Holy Spirit, from the Lord. Scribes that were recording and writing them down. Historians that were collecting the work and edit, um, editors that were... Uh, you know, as things were being passed down, were correcting mistakes or, or putting them together at various stages in Israel's history. This is the way that books work today. I mean, this book that I've been referencing by Michael Byrd, um, it's his name that appears on the cover, um, but he would be quick to tell you that this is not the result of him alone. Um, and so while he put in the time uh, to study and to write this book, there was a whole team of editors and content editors. There was a publisher, there was a printer, there was design artists, there were people uh, who were reading it for content. There were uh, people who were reading it for grammatical uh, issues. Uh, there was dozens of people that went into making this uh, one small book, even though it's his name on the cover. Now, the process of publishing a book today is different uh, than uh, the way that these books came to be. But Michael Bird's point stands that it's a whole group of people, not just the person's name who's on the book, like Daniel or Ezra or Nehemiah, um, who just wrote it down and then uh, passed it. And, and part of uh, the reason for that, that is because... Um, copies of paper don't last very long. <laughs> My guess is if you, if I were to ask you what's the oldest book you've ever held in your hands, it might be under a hundred years old um, because paper dries out and is brittle and burns when there's fires and gets ruined when there's floods. So the Leningrad Codex um, is actually the oldest complete copy of the Hebrew Bible. And it's old uh, but it's not nearly as old as the Hebrew Bible is itself. So the Leningrad Codex, which is the oldest complete copy of the Hebrew scriptures, uh, dates to the 11th century AD. So just a little bit under uh, a thousand years ago. It's remarkable that it still exists today. Um, but the Hebrew Bible, the complete Hebrew Bible existed long before that. It's just that, uh, like I said, paper and scrolls are very fragile. And so to get a copy that lasts 100 years is a great feat. To get it to last 200, 300, 400, 500, 700, 1,000 years is absolutely uh, remarkable, which is why we don't have original copies of any of the scriptures. There's no existent original copy of, you know, the letters of Paul or the Gospels. Um, those original, you know, the original paper that the Apostle Paul had his epistles written down on has long ago uh, burned in a fire or or disintegrated just through age and time. And so it's always, the scriptures have always uh, required, prior to computers, it's always required uh, people faithfully taking the scriptures and copying them over and over again. And, and sometimes, unfortunately, that's led to uh, translation errors or, or different kinds of copying errors. Um, but yet the story of the scriptures has been faithfully passed down century after century after century. And today with uh, modern technology, uh, some of that work has become a lot easier. And people who live long after us um, will be able to uh, have much more accurate 
translations and copies because of uh, the ability to store things digitally. The oldest copy of a complete Old Testament book is the Scroll of Isaiah, uh, found among the Dead Sea Scrolls in the Qumran community. And this is really old. This is just absolutely phenomenally remarkable <laughs> that, uh, that this exists. But it's dated uh, between 350 to 100 BC. That means that this uh, copy of Isaiah existed uh, this physical this physical copy of Isaiah existed at least a hundred years before Jesus. So we're talking really, really, really old, and it survived all all of that time. So uh, there's so much more that can be said about the Old Testament. I just wanted to introduce and talk about a few uh, concepts that are worth knowing and hopefully whet your appetite to go and do your own research and learn a little bit more, maybe pick up a copy of Michael Bird's book. Uh, but here's some key takeaways that I, I want to leave us with today. Number one, the Hebrew Bible was what Jesus, John the Baptist, the disciples, the apostles, the apostle Paul, it's what they considered scripture. And so we should consider it scripture too, especially since that's what Jesus uh, considered scripture. Uh, while today's readers, uh, secondly, while today's readers of the Hebrew Bible, we face the four distance challenges of time, culture, geography, and language, the Old Testament remains foundational and authoritative for modern Christian readers. And we'll, we'll look later in the series more about what it means for the Bible to be authoritative and inspired. Um, but it means we need to take the Old Testament seriously. We need to, we need to read the Hebrew Bible uh, as Jesus would have read it, as, as scripture, as the word of God. Well, how do we do that? Well, let's keep in mind the purpose of the scriptures. And the purpose of the scriptures is knowledge of God, faith in God, love of God and others, and endurance and hope. And so whether you're reading Genesis or you're reading another book in the Torah, or you're reading Esther, or Ezra, or Daniel, or First Samuel, wherever you're reading Psalms, the purpose of the scriptures is to grow your knowledge of God, to bring you to a point of faith in him, to develop your love for him and for others, and to grow your endurance and hope so that you can walk out your faith in a meaningful way uh, in your actual day-to-day -day life. All right, I love talking about the Bible, so if you have any questions, uh, feel free to reach out to me. Otherwise, I uh, go and uh, study more and learn more, and I hope you have a great day. Thanks for joining us. Go with God.